Hello, listeners. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to another episode of Cloud Ninefin, a podcast about lending and leverage. I'm your host, Will Cager Smith, and this week I'm joined by Marissa Sotomayor, a partner at King and Spalding. We'll introduce today's topic in a minute, but first, Marissa, can you just quickly introduce yourself and briefly explain what areas of the leverage finance market you focus on? I'm I'm happy to. Hello, Cloud Nine Finn. This is my first podcast, so very exciting. I am Marissa Sotomayor. I am a partner at King and Spalding. Uh, we are an international law firm. I'm based in the New York office. And I cover and handle all aspects of corporate finance, but really with a focus on leverage lending and commercial finance. I represent lenders and borrowers up and down the capital structure in uh, commercial loans and other uh, financial products. Cool. All right. So at Ninefin, we write about pretty much everything you cover, and we talk about most of them at some length on this podcast. But today... I want to focus on the part of your practice that deals with direct lending groups at regulated banks. So I think there are a few different names for these groups, which I'm sure you'll get into, but ultimately it all kind of boils down to the same thing and it's become a much bigger part of the market um, over the past few months. So um, at at a high level, can you explain what these groups are and what they do? Sure, absolutely. Uh, So these groups are known by various names, to your point, can be principal investing uh, or just private credit, direct lending. And it's effectively that, right? It's private credit uh, and direct lending products that are led by or done by regulated banks versus credit funds. Okay. So there are lots of banks that have these kind of groups, whatever you want to call them, that are active in the leveraged finance space. Do you, have you seen an, in, an increase in the popularity of these groups over the past few months or in the amount of activity in that particular corner of the LevFin space? Definitely. I think in the last year or so, we've seen more focus on or publicity around these types of uh, groups, if you will. Um, with the rise of direct lending and direct lending and private credit really becoming a formidable competitor in the lending market and uh, challenge to traditional bank lending, we've seen banks start these types of groups to capture on that market share uh, and remain competitive. Right. Yeah. So there are there are some banks that have had these kind of groups for a while. And then there's some actually quite large banks like Barclays and JP Morgan, for example, that have been in the news this year, kind of starting new desks to focus on this kind of thing. Correct. Um, so I, I want to get a better idea of the the kind of deals that these groups do and how they're structured. So can you give some examples of what kind of credits they might lend to in the sub-investment grade space and how they might structure their deals? Yeah. And before we go there, I think it's important to distinguish that there are many ways to skin a cat, right? And so there are different um, forms that these types of groups might take. Some are focused on balance sheet lending, right, the actual balance sheet of the of the bank itself. And others draw on the asset management arms of the bank, whereby they're using third party funds uh, or other investors funds to, you know, then deploy uh, capital. Right. And that just depends on, again, the institution and its mandate and so on. Right. Right. Yeah. As, as you pointed out. 
there's uh, there's more than one way to to skin a cat or structure an investment bank and i'm aware that we're trying to kind of boil down a very complex space into simple definitions um so that's tough and, and i guess listeners should should take these uh these attempts with a pinch of salt but um if we can maybe talk about how uh, a debt instrument underwritten by one of these bank direct lending desks might differ from the typical structure of a kind of a broadly syndicated LBO financing or, or kind of debt financing, for example. Sure, sure. And just taking a, a, another step back, these teams at banks can effectively do any deal that any other private credit provider could do, right? In general, it just depends on, as always, the mandate of the um, group itself and the credit analysis, just like anything else. It's, it's an underwriting decision. Um, I think that if we were to compare and contrast between these types of deals versus a traditional credit fund lending, banks may be affected by, for example, the leverage lending guidelines, right, whereby they can only lend up to a certain leverage multiple, as well as any applicable U.S. or foreign regulation or authority. Banks are a you know creature of statute, right, and are, are, and are federally and state mandated, uh, excuse me, regulated. Uh, so, so that's always something to think about when we look at um, structuring different types of investments with with these types of clients. Okay, so let's talk a bit about banks syndicating debt versus keeping it on their balance sheet. Can you just explain the differentiation there? Yeah, absolutely. In traditional bank lending, um, you you see the syndicated product. Um, which is which is again when when a, a loan is underwritten by an investment bank and then distributed to institutional investors like CLOs, funds, uh, other banks, and 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 so on. Um, to to bring it back to the the private credit arms of the banks, which is the the topic of today's podcast, the instruments that are being extended by these uh, private credit arms are typically held, right? They're not widely distributed. I mean, they can be, but, uh, and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, again, these are, these are held versus distributed like most other private credit instruments. So that allows uh, these, these private credit groups to get creative. They can take down an entire tranche, let's say, of, of, of debt in the capital structure, invest in preferred equity or other equity-like structures. Um, there there are more possibilities in that respect since we're not syndicating. Right. Okay. So, so plenty of different structures that they can look at on, on those desks. Um, I want to focus on one of those in particular now, which is um, within that kind of non-syndicated, or I guess you, you might call it pro rata um, debt suite of, of debt instruments. One that we've written about a lot recently is the term loan A. So with this indicated market so unreliable and also just expensive right now, we've seen private equity sponsors doing buyout deals without the leverage, for example, i.e. with 100% equity. And now we're hearing that some sponsors are really leaning on their banks to underwrite term loan A's for these kind of situations because they understand that the term loan B market, the syndicated market or the syndicated bond market as well, just not really accessible. But a term loan A might provide a little bit of leverage, not as much as a syndicated deal, um, but some at least that will help boost returns, but without the high cost and 
syndication risk of a term loan B or other forms of syndicated debt. So is that something you're familiar with? And, and what is it about a term loan A that might make a bank more comfortable with that risk than a term loan B? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a term loan A, uh, to begin at the beginning, is an amortizing loan versus a term loan B, which has minimal amort and a bullet at maturity. Um, the term loan A typically has shorter maturity than an institutional term loan B, and um, may or may not, but usually does include a, a coterminous revolver, right, um, for, for working capital and other purposes. The term loan A, to again, compare to the term loan B, um, typically has tighter or more restrictive terms that are more lender favorable. So to your question and to your, to your point, um, that's, of course, more attractive to lenders. Uh, and whereas a term loan B would be sold down to investors, i.e. it's institutionally driven, right, and, and, and susceptible to um, market volatility, market volatility, excuse me, and, and market appetite, um, the, the term loan A is typically held by banks and other similar financial institutions. Um, again, those, those term loan A's are, are held, again, typically through maturity and not distributed. Right, understood. Okay. So... Would a term loan A be the kind of deal a bank would do from its direct lending group specifically, or would it just be on the balance sheet of the Lev Fin group? Or does it, maybe it depends entirely on this in, on the institution. I mean, can you explain some of the ways that that might work? Yeah, it, it, it's exactly that. I think it depends on the institution. I think TLAs are typically held by lenders that lend, right, versus lenders that syndicate and lenders that distribute. So perhaps for, for, for some banks that could be done through the direct lending desk, but for others and more of the commercial bank lenders, right? Um, that would be um, just simply done by the regular way lending group. Right. Okay. Yeah, that actually makes me think of the Citrix example, which is, um, you know, that, that deal was very tough for them to syndicate. Right. Um, so they they downsized the amount that they were doing in term loan B format and right. upsized the term loan A. Right. And uh, they ended up holding the term loan A on their balance sheet, but they have a lockup period until the end of the year. So they could potentially try and offload it to other investors next year once that lockup period is over. But they may have to, they may restructure it as a kind of incremental piece of the, the existing term loan B. Right. Um, to make it, you know, palatable for the, for the institutional market. Um, but that touches on my next point, which is one of the reasons that those banks will probably want to get that term loan A off their balance sheet, although this might differ depending on what part of the bank they're holding it in, is regulation, right? Capital weighting. So I was speaking to a banker recently who suggested that it would be a lot less onerous from a capital weighting perspective, you know, the amount of capital you have to hold against that position, for a regulated bank to underwrite a TLA for a, say, a double B plus rated software company than, for example, a single B minus rated construction company. So can you explain a bit about the factors that go into these capital weightings and how much that might impact a bank's appetite for these kind of loans? I mean, does it really move the needle in terms of their ability or willingness to do these deals? Yeah, I think it may. Um, ultimately, that's a credit decision and it's influenced by uh, underwriting concerns and, and constraints and it's part of the business analysis. But that being said, and, and to your example, a the software company in your example likely has more sticky revenue streams, right, is more attractive uh, in that way to an underwriter versus a construction company 
that is affected by things like the cyclical nature of its business. Um, we saw huge supply chain issues, right, during COVID, and some even still persist coming out of COVID. So, um, again, to me, all of that goes to the the fundamentals of underwriting alone and the the credit decision process. Right. Okay. And the the other thing to bear in mind, I guess, with with a term loan A, but other forms of this kind of buy and hold principal investment debt is that, as you said before, is typically a kind of hold to maturity situation, Mm -hmm. although there might be exceptions to it, like Mm -hmm. we were just discussing. But what's the liquidity of these kinds of instruments? I mean, are they generally structured with documentation that prevents them from being traded on the open market? Or can banks potentially flip them to outside investors? They could in that there typically are not restrictions in the documents themselves to assigning the loans. That said, typically these loans don't trade in the way that a an institutional loan or a, you know a syndicated term loan B would trade. Right. Okay. So the lines between banks and private credit firms, kind of as we've discussed, are becoming increasingly blurred. And one of the reasons that J.P. Morgan, for example, gave for setting up its its new kind of uh, principal finance desk within Levfin um, is that they have to do that because they need to remain competitive with with the private credit firms, these big firms like Apollo or Blackstone or KKR. Um, so, what I'm curious about is how do these direct lending deal structures that regulated banks will do differ from the kinds of deals that traditional like large private credit firms or direct lenders might do? Is there much difference in terms of the way they're structured or the documentation or the terms and that kind of thing? Like how much crossover is there and how much competition? I, I think there's a lot of crossover. I don't, I don't necessarily think that we can distinguish between the direct lending products offered by banks versus a private credit fund, right? I, I think we should also look at that and, and think about that question with a, with a macro lens. Um, private credit in general has exploded over the last you know, five years. A- according to market researchers, AUM has effectively doubled right, in, in the private credit space over the last five years. I think the market is easier to access now. There's more demand and there's more competition where historically we we did not see those levels of uh, lenders bidding to provide um, this this capital. Um, I think that because we're in such a volatile and right now inflationary environment, um, we will continue to see the lines being blurred between what the banks are offering and what the private credit firms are offering with respect to these buy and hold structures or direct lending structures uh, generally, um, especially because private credit funds can write bigger and bigger checks. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we saw the rise of the large unit tranches over the last few years. So I think, I think b- banks are, are willing to get on in the action, so to speak. Okay, and one thing that might play into that kind of competition or crossover dynamic between the private credit funds and the regulated banks is the returns that these different groups are expecting. So, for example, we've already seen that private credit firms, which used to be winning deals 
partly by undercutting banks on pricing, have actually now increased their pricing. And that's got to be partly because LPs are expecting greater returns these days. And those return expectations might differ from a regulated bank. So how does that factor into the discussion? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, historically, the syndicated market has been strong, driven by demand from institutional investors like CLOs and, and other funds, right? There was just voracious, voracious appetite to uh, among those groups, right, of, of investors to to take down these these loans, right, um, and we've seen th- think about it this way as, as a shift in strategy. Um, accordingly, traditional bank lending was focused more on upfront or front end fees at the beginning of the deal for underwriting uh, the the debt for syndication versus holding the loans to maturity. Um, as the market has become choppier, you now see these direct lending arms realize we're losing market share, we're losing fees, and there's a benefit and a value to holding loans to uh, to maturity, right, for, for the yield, for, for the increased pricing. Right. So it's not, you know, th- th- that's another way to make money. You don't have to just think about being in the moving business. You can exactly. be in the storage business as well. <laughs> exactly. Right. Good example. All right. And then final question. Um do you see the broadly syndicated markets kind of recovering over the next, like, I don't know how long, maybe maybe you can give a, a time period. Like, what's, what <laughs> are your- only ex- I had a crystal ball. Right, yeah. <laughs> but so what are, what are your expectations around, around that dynamic over the next few months? Oh, it's a great question. And I'm not really sure that anyone knows. Um, I, I, I think we have seen some uh, signs of life, right, in the- in the syndicated markets with a, with a few new issues coming to market here and there. Um, I, I think we're really looking to the end of the first half of 23, if not, you know, really <laughs> in earnest, the second half of, of 23 before we start to see the traditional LBOs come back. Fingers crossed. I'll make sure to drop you a call in the middle of <laughs> 2023 do. and see whether that prediction is Maybe you'll invite me back <laughs> and we can discuss further. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, been really helpful. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anyone else you think might appreciate it. And also, if there's something you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please do let us know. You can always reach us by email on team at ninefin.com. Don't forget to check back in next week with my London colleagues to hear the latest on European markets. I'll be back the week after that. Until then, as always, take care.